Hello, and welcome to another episode of Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. My name is Katherine Troyer, and joining me as always is Anthony Tresca. Hello there. This is a podcast devoted to thoughtful discussions about that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is, for better or worse, giving us nightmares. And we are so thankful for you to be joining us today for our discussion of the 2002 film, 28 Days Later. Um, so this is part of our sort of ongoing series of films that we feel are very relevant for the COVID-19 situation that we are currently all experiencing. Yes, yeah, this is a uh, this is definitely a film that I I would say applies very strongly to the current situation that is going on. I hadn't seen this film before before we made decided to do an episode about this for our podcast. So this is my first time watching it during the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, and you said it was kind of a rough viewing experience. Yeah, it was. I don't know. I I'm a you know, I've talked about all sorts of horror. I watch a bunch of horror, of course, the genre that I probably watch the most of. So I'm not, I don't have a weak stomach or anything to this. I, in fact, I quite enjoy it. I turn on horror to relax sometimes. It's like as contradictory and paradoxical as that sounds. But I think, you know, anyone who's listening to this podcast completely understands, right? Like I know so many people that are like, after a long, hard day, I just want to watch some slaughter. Yeah, you just, you want to watch that, like, Evil Dead. We were talking about that. That's one of the films I just watched for the first time. That is not like a lighthearted film. Gory, gruesome, but I had a great time watching it. Lots of fun. 28 Days Later, I did not have a good time watching this. I did not enjoy watching this film at all. Not a good time. I, I, I struggled to, to make myself keep watching. The only reason I did was because I knew I had to talk about it for this podcast. And you even said that it was harder for you to watch this film than to watch Contagion. Yeah, it was, which I, didn't make a lot of sense to me because Contagion is more of a direct parable to what is going on right now in the world. So you'd think it would be harder for me to get through Contagion, but it wasn't. It was much harder for me to get through 28 Days Later. And I know what, you, I know what you're going to say. Yeah, I know what you're going to yeah, say. Exactly, you do. Because I, I feel like with the moment that you told me that, I just felt... It's complete validation because I would make the the argument as I did once before that the reason that that 28 days later hits you harder um, is because Contagion is not ultimately a horror film. And, and I don't I don't know if I agree with that. I think it's more of just like Contagion ultimately is an affirmative horror film that because everything really works out. Whereas this is definitely disaffirmative. Yes, this is definitely a film that is is all about um, that idea that the thing that is broken the most is us and oh, yeah. society and who we are. Um, I also think that like to go, to go back to the idea of affirmative, right? There's so much of um, contagion that is affirmative without ever explicitly being so. Mm -hmm. So for example, never once does it question the idea of the nuclear family, right? It just no. assumes that the family unit is the strongest unit um, and the most wholesome unit. Um, and, and then your co-workers is the second yeah. most strong unit, right? And even even in a film that attempts to like lob some critiques at the government and the military and the world 
like the United Nations and their responses to it ultimately comes down very much on the side of good government, good army, good military, good world government type of things. Yes, it's much more about like the isolated bad eggs rather than the whole batch has gone rotten from the start. Yeah, where, yeah, that which is, you've just described 28 days later. <laughs> yeah, we're, and, and I think that, you know, and it, again, I'm still going to disagree that I think Contagion is just straight up not horror, and that's part of the problem. But at the very least, one of the reasons that um, I think 28 Days Later is so important to talk about is because it is offering us this disaffirmative viewpoint. And I know, I know that we need to be very positive right now, um, and we need to look at all the good stories. It's very important for us to see the stories of, you know, the grandparents who are socially isolating and so the great grandchildren are like brought to the window but they're not allowed to touch but it's so heartwarming or the people who are buying groceries like it's really important to hear those stories but i think it's also important to be reminded of some of the lessons of uh 28 days later and that's it's it's exhausting um i was telling you anthony earlier that like i at one time wanted to use the 28 days later theme song as my ringtone because I think it's gorgeous music. And it ultimately, is. I couldn't because it just made me so tired. Like, listening to that music, it just feels like you're in the fight for your life. And it's a fight that you are losing from the moment you start. And I just couldn't I couldn't have that be the sound that I heard throughout the day, um, every day. Fair enough. That does that. That sounds very exhausting. It sounds like it would just trigger your fight or flight every yeah. single time you hear it. Like, no, it was just a... It was just a text. It was just a text. I don't have to run. I know, but it did. Like, I tried. It was. It just was destroying me from the start. Um, so, 28 Days Later, a film that is very good, even if it's not always enjoyable. Um, let's start with what was missing in our last episode on Parasite. Let's start with some theoretical framework. Yeah, that sounds good to me. That's not... I wanted you to, like, cheer... Oh, okay. okay. Set it up again. Let's start with some academic framework. Woo! Academic framework. Hooray! Thank Woo! you. That was beautiful. Definitely authentic sounding. Oh, yeah. So, um, zombies. Uh, we'll get into a discussion after the theoretical framework and after um, Anthony tells us some really interesting things about the making of this film. Um, but, but this is a film that is pretty consistently uh, discussed in conjunction with zombie theory and and sort of a zombie studies. I actually couldn't choose. There were too many. Um, there's so many great books that have come out about zombie scholarship and about, you know, like why zombies matter and why they matter in different cultures and why they matter universally. So I'm, I honestly I felt like picking what I imagine it would feel like to pick a child um, to take, but so I, I decided not to go that route and to just mention some of um, the the great texts that you could consult and look at if this is at all interest to any of you. Okay, so to just name a very small uh, few number of books that I, I recommend looking at, I want to start with one of my favorites, which is Kyle William Bishop's American Zombie Gothic. Unfortunately, since 28 Days Later is a British film, it's not it's not quite as applicable as some of the other texts uh, that we'll be looking at today, but it's one that I highly recommend. There's also Generation Zombie, Essays on the Living Dead in Modern Culture. There's one on Zombies, Vampires, and Philosophy, New Life for the Undead. Zombie Culture, 
Autopsies of the Living Dead, and Better Off Dead, The Evolution of the Zombie as Post-Human. So those are just a few of the many, many books uh, that are on zombies. But one of the things that I think is particularly important for our discussion um, today is the general consensus that zombie films serve as a really sort of perfect metaphor for whatever it is that we tend to be experiencing or going through um, culturally in that moment, right? They're a perfect uh, zeitgeist, if you will. And it starts, um, honestly, back with the early black and whites. I walked with a zombie, white zombie, where we have uh, the more traditional Haitian voodoo zombie stories. And almost always, unsurprisingly, a white female uh, who is being threatened by the dark, scary, uh, you know, sexual black man, which I don't think is um, much of a surprise considering where we were at culturally in the 1930s in America. Yeah, unfortunately, that's not shocking. Yeah, no, and, and that's like, and I think what you said is, is truth. It's like devastating that that's not shocking. I mean, that's a, I was, while you were describing it, I was like, is this a zombie movie or are you describing King Kong? Yeah. Because it, it's just so, so entrenched in the culture. It most certainly is. Unfortunately, again. Yeah, yeah again, <laughs> desperately, unfortunately. Um, and then we go into, um, what we understand is, is the modern zombie, which of course comes from uh, none other than George Romero with Night of the Living Dead. And it's not surprising that it's a film that is very much uh, about this like fear of, of people or creatures, because they're never called zombies, that um, all sort of have a hive mind, uh, you know, sort of communist feel to them, right? Um, and whether or not... Romero and, and, you know, if you listen to the stories of Night of the Living Dead in the production, uh, it sounds like it wasn't intentional that they cast the the main character as black and then had him killed by the police. That was something that was sort of a, a secondary thing, right? They cast the person they thought would be best and, oh, by the way, he happened to also be black. Um, but, you know, considering that when they were um, wrapping up filming of that film, they were driving somewhere and they heard about the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Again, I think it's very fitting that that's happening then we get to the 70s and consumerism. Um, and so we get mall zombies. Um, and then we pretty much go up through the 80s and Thriller uh, broke the zombie genre for a very brief period of time. Yeah. Because it was like, okay, what are we supposed to do now? We've had dancing zombies. There's really like nothing else. There's nothing else. Yeah, one interesting thing about the zombie uh mythos what, that I was looking into in doing research for this film is that that you're what like what you said thriller kind of broke the zombie genre for a while until Resident Evil and then this film brought it back in the early 2000s and one of the things I really like a lot about Kyle William Bishop's book the American zombie gothic is his discussion of the of how the zombie genre exploded exponentially so post 9-11 and while 28 Days Later is not uh, an American text, and so it's not always looking at the same issues that other American zombie texts are. And it also, interestingly enough, it was filmed before 9-11 yes. uh, occurred. So that wasn't even, it didn't even factor in. And if you read the scholarship, um, they talk about how it's really about like British na nationhood, right? And sort of statehood. Um, but I think what's interesting and what makes this film in my opinion, one that is constantly worth going back to is that even though it wasn't about 9-11, 
it can be read as a text that's discussing the time that would have led up to a 9-11. Even though it's not um, a text that came about nearish Brexit, um, I still think you can read this text as one that is sort of addressing some of the concerns and issues of Brexit. Um, even though it's not a COVID-19 text, again, I think it, it's a text that's very timely. So the last thing that I want to talk about very briefly, there are some articles that are actually on 28 Days Later, um, and they're worth checking out. But the one that I want to reference is by Nicole LaRose. And she's talking specifically about this film as a metaphor of post-war Britain. And the reason I chose her article to talk about is for two reasons. One, one of the things that we will be discussing, Anthony and I, is whether or not this is a zombie film and, and whether or not that matters. Um, and she offers a, a lovely sort of term to get around that whole discussion. So she says uh, these are films that have zombies that are not zombies or what she calls Z in Zs. Um, and I just think that's kind of a, a, a nice work. I guess she, I guess she didn't want to call it Schrodinger's zombie. Oh, I like that. That's nice. Um, can we make that like, can we make it into one word? Shrombie? Shrombie? Shrombie. Yeah, let's. Let's play with that. Let's have a, let's have a version of that. Zomburger? Um, I don't know. Something. Yes. We'll figure it out by the end of this episode. We'll get there. <laughs> uh, and, and what she said in, in this article, um, she said, all, this is a quote from her, although the film was completed during the anthrax scare and distributed as the SARS outbreak and monkeypox created media hysteria, Boyle explains, quote, we actually had a lower level of paranoia in mind, a very British one, which was the continued scare over mad cow disease and the sudden foot and mouth outbreak. For months, the UK was full of fields of burning animals, biblical images of pyres on the horizon, smoke filling the sky. End of that, that quote. Um, and then LaRose continues, the paranoia that sparked Boyle and Garland's interest in epidemics was the destruction of the British livestock industry. But beyond this economic destruction, Mad cow disease, like dementia and Alzheimer's disease, means that rational and reasonably healthy individuals could be mentally dehabilitated by exposure to everyday contaminants. And a little bit later, she says, 28 days later critiques the attempt to maintain an ideal of British statehood and identity by equating the institutions of control, especially the church and the military, with the rage that has infected society. Um, and she says the answer ultimately is not a return to the system of inequality and hierarchical power advocated by the military community, but instead the protection of a cooperative community based on equality and concern for others. Um, and then she says the film examines how rage and violence are dangerous and destructive forces in our world. So I just thought that we'll come back to, I think, a good chunk of that. But uh, that's what I have now. So, Anthony, if you'd like to lead us on a journey into the production yeah sure so 28 days later like you've said british film 2002 post-apocalyptic horror film directed by danny boyle and written by alex garland uh those names should probably sound familiar they're very very big uh danny boyle train spotting uh, 28 days later Plump dog millionaire 127 hours steve jobs and most recently the film yesterday and then alex garland also also quite notable he's uh he's the person who wrote 28 days later and then sunshine and then he his big thing that he broke out with was ex machina he was the writer director of 
Ex Machina, and then uh, most recently, Annihilation and Devs, which was a TV miniseries. So both two very, very well-known people were attached to this project, and two people who went on to do really, really interesting and incredible things after this, too. Absolutely. Uh, so it's got a pretty good cast. Killian Murphy, Naomi Harris, uh, Brendan Gleeson, Megan Burns. And on the DVD commentary, Boyle talks about how in order to help with the suspension of disbelief, relatively unknown actors were cast in the film. So at this, while a lot of these actors have gone on to be quite big, uh, Killian Murphy started working at this time in mostly independent films. Naomi Harris was in television. And Megan Burns only had one previous film credit. However, a couple there were a couple of exceptions. Brendan Gleeson was a pretty well-known character actor at the time. But and can I say, I'm just a, I'm a big fan of that decision. I really do think it helps to create um, a suspension of disbelief. Yeah, um, I, I agree. I recently watched. So, Anthony, you know that I watch a lot of bad movies and I end up watching them sometimes multiple times because I can't remember if I've seen them before. Sure. So I recently just rewatched a movie called Malevolent and the reason I rewatched it was A, I couldn't remember if what it was about, but B, because I realized that the first time I watched it, I didn't know who Florence Pugh was and she's in it. How am I just hearing that Florence Pugh is in another horror film besides Midsummer? Yeah, it's, you know, it's not a bad film. Um, well, I don't care. I'm gonna. I'm about to add it to my Netflix list because yeah. I'll just watch anything Florence Pugh is in. Yeah. So, it, like I said, it's not a. It's not a great film. It's not a bad film. Um, but it is a film that stands out uh, in terms of her performance because she's adorably fantastic. Um, but I rewatched it specifically because I remember the first time I watched it, I didn't know who she was because it would have been before um, Midsommar, I believe. And um, yeah, that was it was before her breakout. Her breakout year was 2019. So yeah, and and honestly, it changed the film for me, right? It changed the film for me in terms of my willingness to to try really hard to accept it as a good film, but also I focused on her a little bit more, right? And so again, I am all for uh, horror films choosing actors that have very little. Uh, I was gonna say street cred, but that's not the right phrase. Um, but you know what I mean? Uh, screen experience. Presence. Experience. Yeah. There we go. Because uh, I really sure. think it makes a huge difference. So. Yeah. Uh, and after you go back and you watch it, these actors are pretty recognizable now. I mean, Killian Murphy was in the Dark Knight trilogy, as well as yes. a bunch of other things. Naomi Harris, she was nominated for an Academy Award for Moonlight, so she's obviously a big deal. She's gone on, but at the time hadn't done anything mm -hmm. so a little bit now about the production uh danny boyle as well as the producer were talked about uh working on the zombie film uh they coming up with an idea for it and alex garland talked about the writing process of it he had an idea about running zombies wrote it sent a draft to them and forwarded a few drafts and while he was working on 28 days later he had a lot of zombie movies in his head as well as zombie video games like resident evil uh, and he actually acknowledges that the Resident Evil uh, video game series reminded him how much he loved zombies after not really encountering zombies for quite a while. Because he also uh, references other influences like the George Romero films, Night of the Living Dead, and Dawn of the Dead from 1968 and 1978, respectively. But he just hadn't, he didn't have any other good examples from that period in between. 
1978 and 1996 when Resident Evil came out. And so he just talked about how much those influenced him in his writing. And I think you can see that in the film. Yeah, I don't think you can write a a zombie film or even a zombie film that's not a zombie film without being influenced by the major players. Oh, yeah. And George Romero's films, obviously, are major players. Yes. So the 28 Days Later film had to be shot in a very interesting way because they wanted to use real locations in London. So like the Westminster Bridge, uh, Oxford Street. And in order to do this, the film had to close off sections of the street for minutes at a time, usually in the early mornings, on Sundays, and would only usually have about 45 minutes uh, in order to get all of the shots that they needed there in order to minimize the disruption from the public and what they were doing. Yeah, so they just had to, any of those scenes that you see in like very famous areas from London, they just had to shoot them really, really quickly because they were really shooting there and they had to just get in and out so that people could go back to using it. And like I said, most of the film filming took place prior to the September 11th attacks. And in the commentary on, on the DVD, Boyle notes the parallels between the missing persons flyers seen at the beginning of the film and the similar flyers posted in New York City in the wake of the attacks. And he adds that he, the crew probably wouldn't have been able to uh, close it off Whitehall for filming after the terrorist attacks in New York and Washington. Uh, and I, I told you um, that another thing that Boyle talks about is the, the need for digital cameras. Uh, yeah. to, to make it possible because digital cameras are just so much cheaper um, than than film, you know, cameras with film. And around that time, 2000 was when people were making the decision, right? I think at this point, almost everyone, unless you're like Spielberg, is probably going to go, uh, and even he goes digital, right? But like yeah. um, in 2000, it was still very much a, a deliberation. And so if any of you were interested in a really weird, delightful, but also odd, a documentary I recommend side by side, which is more or less the story of Keanu Reeves discovering the story of, of d- digital filmmaking. But they talk about 28 Days Later in there. Yeah, makes sense because it was it really prominently used techniques that could only be achieved in with digital filmmaking. Yes, such as that shaky cam type of feel. Yes, that was much much harder to do with regular filmed film cameras. Absolutely. So on the DVD commentary, Boyle and Garland frequently call the film post-apocalyptic and horror film. Uh, But during the initial marketing of the film, this is interesting, Boyle tried to distance it from those labels. Uh, He identified John Winningham's The Day of the Triffids as Garland's original inspiration for the story, which was not true. As as I said, Garland has talked publicly about George Romero and the Resident Evil uh, things being direct influences on the film. So clear post-apocalyptic zombie horror texts. Although it's interesting that you mentioned that because that article by Nicole LaRose, she was making the comparison between the two texts. Um, yeah, so, you know, which... that, that still, that conversation still exists in part because both texts are really looking at kind of this idea of, of Britainhood, right? Mm-hmm. Um, That's true. 28 Days Later was received really well by critics and fans alike. 87% on Rotten Tomatoes from the critics, 85% from audiences. The Metacritic score is at a 73 from critics and a 7.7 from audiences. And it has a 3.7 out of five on Letterboxd. So just really universally uh, beloved film and held mm-hmm. in very high regard. It, ha- it got a sequel actually 
uh, 28 weeks later, released in 2007, with Boyle and Garland producing. And it roughly follows... Uh, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's a an sequel. interesting. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting, interesting film. It um, sounds interesting. I haven't seen it, but yeah. So I have. It's um, you know, it's not as good, and I would argue that it's um, if Twenty Eight Days Later is is the sort of more nihilistic horror that's definitely disaffirmative, Twenty Weeks Later is is a little bit more like horror thriller, because mm. it's got um, Jeremy Reiner. Yeah. It's- yeah. Jeremy Reiner, Rose Byrne. Yeah, and and Idris Elba. Yeah, so it's got you know it's got people that I think are a little bit more associated a lot of times with um, action thrillers, and it's and it is it's it's much more action packed, um, but it does do some interesting things of okay if this has happened what next um, and and I'm a big fan of of that what next question. Well, if you are a big fan of that, then I've got good news for you. There's been talk of making a third film in the series called 28 Months Later. Uh, Boyle first floated that title around back in 2007. And then in 2019, he says that Alex Garland and I had a wonderful idea for a third part. So that might be coming. Well, if, if they were to do it, I'm okay. I'm much more okay with that. Sure. But, you I'd know, give it a shot. I get real sad with sequels that are just cash cows. Yeah. So there's also been comic books of this, and then it has a really strong cultural impact. Uh, Like I said, it was credited along with Resident Evil as being the revival for the zombie genre. It has been, it was an influence of films like uh, the remake of Dawn of the Dead, uh, Shaun of the Dead, Black Sheep, which we've talked about, Planet Terror, Dead Snow, Zombieland, as well as books like World War Z, Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies, Warm Body, and then as the graphic novels of the and television show *The Walking Dead*, and so it's it's a really important film. It is, it is, um, which is good because it's also a good film. Um, it yeah, it's it's good that it's both an important film and a good film. Yes, not always the case, as we have argued eloquently. Um, anything else? No, that's it. That's uh, that is. 28 days later. Excellent. So um, for our discussion today, uh, we thought we would talk about the zombie or not zombie uh, issue. Um, Talk a little bit more about just why this film feels so perfect um, and perhaps perfectly disturbing uh, for this time and then kind of go from there. So what would you like to do first? Um, I think we can. We should probably talk about the zombie aspect of it. I think that makes the most sense. Okay, so this is a film that is, if you were going to go by all technical definitions, not a zombie film, in that there are not zombies. We have humans who have been polluted or um, enhanced, depending on what word you want to use, with rage. Um, it seems like it's an infection of some, like a, a, a disease, like a, a, I thought it was a viral disease based on the so, lab from the beginning. Yes, it is, but, but the monkeys that have this virus got it by being subjected to hours and hours of footage of human atrocities. Oh, okay. And so, so if you remember 
at the very beginning of the film, right, there's the monkey and it's watching like um, mass murders and burnings and all uh-huh. this stuff. And I think I think one of the like ideas is is that we as humans have this rage always, um, but it has been heightened to a infectious level uh, in this film. But either way, right, it's rage that's the infection, um, and so that's one difference. They're not technically dead um, or undead, uh, as is evidenced by Hannah's dad turning, you know, instantly without having been injured or anything. And um, they, you know, if if your definition of zombies is real, um, I, I would say limited... Rigid. Yes, rigid. That's that's a much better word. Rigid to, you know, they have to eat brains, then certainly that's not what's happening. And they don't even really want to eat humans, right? They just want to rip humans apart. So, on the surface, it seems like there should really be no discussion about this being not a zombie film, but a lot of people classify it as zombie films, and certainly um, if you Google for zombie studies, 28 Days Later is one of the texts that is understandably often discussed. So, yeah. thoughts? I don't know if it necessarily matters. Uh, it doesn't seem like a zombie film to me. Uh, it seems more, which is what I think is the scariest part, because it is very much, I like. I think it's very, the film itself tries to distance itself as not being a zombie film with the the army person talking about how it's the same as what always happens. This is just people killing other people. We did this before the infection and we're doing that now. It's so explicitly saying that these infected people are still humans and we're just, and we're killing them. And now we just, so like the infected or the zombie is just a label that we're putting on to these people in order to make ourselves feel justified in killing them. Yeah. So I think, and, and, this is going to sound super wishy-washy, but I think it simultaneously matters and doesn't matter. Um, Schrodinger is mattering. Yes, pretty much. Thank you. That's lovely. Um, Yes, in fact, we still are trying to work on our Schrodinger zombie phrase. Um, Because I think, on the one hand, it it doesn't matter because this is a a text that people have used um, as, as part of the zombie canon, and so it's it's impacting how people interpret zombie films and so for that reason it doesn't matter if they're technically zombies or not this is a zombie film Mm -hmm. um if that makes sense but on the other hand i think it is important that within this zombie film it is clear that these are not zombies um, in a traditional sense i think it's it serves more as a subversion of the zombie texts that came before it because unlike a lot of the texts that came before it where it's like explicitly clear here is the line in the sand between what is a human and what is an undead killing zombie creature that is not human explicitly clarifying human versus not human us versus them type of thing this film does not allow us to have as neat of a division um i think that what what this film gives us is exactly that, that it reminds us that, you know, it's not us versus other or the dead, undead versus the living. It's us versus the other version of us. Um, man versus man. Exactly. And, you know, that like you said, there's so many texts that have been influenced by that. But one of the ways that I think zombie texts 
post 28 days later have really probed that question is at what point do we decide that we're willing to say someone is no longer living, right? So um, a lot of zombie films, and I've been playing the the Walking Dead um, video game series, will have that question of once someone is bit or once someone is about to die or once someone is whatever, do we kill them before they can become a zombie or, or are they still human until their last moment, right? And that's a big theme that I think only could come out because of 28 days later. And it's a really important one, again, for COVID-19, where we have to, where we have all these discussions about, you know, like at what point, at what point do we consider someone sick? At what point do we consider someone a priority? Uh, or to yeah, be like the access to who gets ventilator access and who doesn't. Exactly. Or even who gets tested and who doesn't. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, while there, again, there are many good things that are coming out of out of this out of this experience in terms of the goodness of humanity um you know if you look at the numbers of the people not being fully treated or not being treated first uh, you know it just continues to show us the inequalities that we should know have always been a part of american yeah. culture it's just disproportionately uh historically marginalized groups yes and i think that 28 days later you know what's it can't do all of that, right? It can't like discuss marginalized groups of people because it's got such a limited cast. But at the same time, it can take, um, you know, it's not a coincidence that the some of the big scenes uh, where we see the darkness, right, is a church and then this military uh, base. Um, and so we are kind of seeing that there are traditionally certain groups or certain um, institutes that may not be quite the sanctuary that we thought they were. Yeah, and they... They really do their part to dismantle the government and like they're just like there is no government. And one of the things I really enjoy about this film is the evolution or potentially devolution of, of Jim. I think that one of the really interesting kind of conversations this film allows us to have is, you know, there at the end when Jim like goes on that murder spree, right? And he's almost like and infected in terms of his rage, it's just that he happens to retain a little bit of his humanity. Um, although, you know, Selena has to like pull him back right there at the end. Um, is that this film asks us to consider, you know, at what point do we quickly or easily become that the monster, right? Become the the thing that is otherwise dark. And it seems that the only real line that this film draws, right, is that the difference between like the good guys and the bad guys is that the good guys don't rape, right? Like that's the, it's not that they don't murder. It's not that they don't pillage. Um, it's just that they don't take some, a woman against her will, which is a line I am super willing to draw, right? Yeah. That's a good, pretty good distinction. Yes. That's but it is good. also, it's, it's not much, right? Um, no, admittedly it's not much. Cause I mean, the, the captain of the army or whatever, is like, you killed the child. He makes, he forces him to think about that. It's like you did that. Yeah. Everyone has to kill in order to survive. And I want you to really think about the fact that you killed a, you killed an actual kid. Yep. Uh, I would recommend that while this film is quite good, that you maybe not watch it right now. I, 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 as I said at the top, I did not enjoy watching this currently just because I do think that in light of everything that's going on, it just it hits a bit too close to home. For me, anyway. See, that's really, it's a really interesting thing to say. 
rewatching it this time, I actually felt like it was kind of exactly what I needed to be watching. Um, and, and I could see like watching it for the first time that not being the case, but watching it for, I don't, I don't even know at this point time. Um, first there was just kind of that nice moment of nostalgia, but, but there is also something, there is something slightly affirmative at play, right? Like it is a very disaffirmative text in, in a lot of significant ways. If we're going to, especially if we're going to understand disaffirmative as being sort of, um, an argument that, that the systems of, of oppression and power are, are the problem. But at the end of the day, you know, we, we do have this like new family unit being formed. Um, and we do see that like, there is goodness and beauty to be found even in the darkest of times. Um, and there is the possibility that, that we can rebuild, um, that it won't ever be the same and that it may not be what we wanted, but that we can have a life even in the darkness. Yeah, but I think you're ignoring a big part of the film though, which is that that only applies to three people. That we know of. Right, that we know of. But I think that the implications of that is like, are pre it's pretty scary. I don't know, at least in, the, in me watching it now, I, I, it was just very uncomfortable to have to think about and just to think about like, I, I obviously COVID-19 is not nearly as bad as what happens sure. in 28 days later, but just thinking about ev almost everyone, you know, probably you, I mean, what are the odds that you are one of those couple handful of survivors that actually does make it in this scenario? It's a dark thing to think about, particularly in light of a global pandemic. You're right. I think. You're absolutely right. Um, I I wonder if, I, I mean, I'm positive that a good chunk of why I'm able to appreciate this film, even perhaps despite what's going on, is because of, of just the, the joy of, of having seen it before, right? This nostalgic element. Um, I also think, though, that for me, maybe for me, it's just, it's easier to, to think to for a moment forget that a global pandemic is something that's happening and, and for a moment to feel like how I always feel when I watch 28 days later, which is that, you know, this isn't, this is a fiction that it's not going to really happen. Um, which again is not the viewing experience you had because you went mm -hmm. into it with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess, yeah. So maybe if you have not seen 28 days later before, wait a while. If you have seen it before, um, maybe check it out again and see. Yeah, it sounds, it does sound like we had quite a bit of a yes. different experience. Which honestly is, is one of the things that I think is the most interesting about studying works of pop culture. I just find it so fascinating that depending upon when you experience something for the first time and also, um, the fact that like in different iterations of, of experiencing it like you're it just changes everything it's the same text yeah but it is it's just a completely different experience and there's something like i don't believe in magic but if i did that's like that's as magic as it gets um that was really dorky but like that it just makes me like i just think it's the neatest thing ever <laughs> yeah it's a bit of a 
it's a, it's a bit magic-y. Yes, bit of thank fun you. little magic. That's right. I think that's it. <laughs> So we have one more film, at least right now, um, that we feel is a COVID-19 appropriate text to be discussing, and that is... 2007's The Mist. So please watch that between now and then, and as always, feel free to... Yeah, but feel free to share us with your friends. Yeah, you can, you can talk about us, whether in person or virtually to your friends. Tell us to give us a listen give us a like and reach out. Feel free to reach out to us on social media, all of which are linked in the description below. Thank you. Thank you.